Mark chapter 8 this morning. Something uh, that is yet to change in my ministry life and my Christian life that I really wish would change someday. Uh, but it hasn't yet, and I don't expect it's going to. It seems like every week there are new areas that I can get off track. As a pastor, it feels like there is, it is so easy as I pursue God's leading for our church and what he's calling us to do, the line for me between, between being diligent and intentional in ministry and bringing in my own ideas of what needs to happen and what we need to do, it is such a thin line. As I look at my personal life, because not all of us are pastors, the line between living in, in, in grace and not keeping judgment upon myself and, and going too far and just not seeking to be, to be sanctified completely, the, the line between having righteous indignation and sinful anger, it can often seem so easy to fall off balance. Anybody else feel that way? That, that so often it is, it's like sin is just so close. It's so easy to get tripped up. It's so easy if we're walking down this line that God has laid before us to just make the smallest shift one way or the other. And before long we realize that we're nowhere near where God called us to be, even though we felt like we were walking the right way the whole time. Our passage today, I believe, addresses this. Um, we're going to be in, like I said, Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 31. It says this, And he began to teach them, speaking of Jesus, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father." With the holy angels. <clears throat> so in this passage, essentially, Jesus gives or preaches, however you want to think about it, the same message two different ways. The second is more the way he typically speaks. Usually when Jesus speaks, he speaks in parables, in imagery. He speaks in ways that it is, for many people, difficult, if not impossible, to understand what he's talking about. And he does this for a number of reasons. One 
is that he speaks in such a way that people only really understand what he's talking about if they are truly seeking to follow him. He also speaks this way so that people will take time to understand the truth that he's trying to speak to them. Many of the things that Jesus says, and this is a great example of it, people aren't ready to hear right away. So he would speak in a parable so that they would understand a little bit at first to the degree that they could accept it. And as they continued in their understanding, they would continue in their application, and that over time they would understand what he was talking about. So in this passage it says, at first he said plainly to the disciples, in something that at least in what we have recorded in the New Testament is a little bit uncharacteristic. He just says, I will suffer, I will be rejected, I will be killed, and after three days I will rise again. And then he goes on and preaches that same thing to the crowds, but he does it in a more cryptic way, right? Now we as believers 2,000 years later, we know the end of the story, It's easy to see where he's going, right? And when he says, you have to take up your cross and follow me, we understand that he literally physically took up a cross and was killed on it. But the people in this moment, in this time, hearing this for the first time, they probably had no idea exactly what to do with that. And well, did he mean that as a a metaphor? Did he was that just, there's all of these things that it could mean. But also, was a sign, looking back, that he first would literally carry that cross. So Jesus preaches the same message twice in this passage. One very clearly and plainly, and one in a more cryptic way, as he usually does question, of course, is why is that and what is different about the two parts of this passage? Now, there's a lot of things that we could talk about here, and, and at least for me, when I read this, I'm first drawn to the character of Peter. Uh, I'm drawn to putting myself in Peter's shoes and, and thinking about the times in my life that I have had the audacity to rebuke Jesus for the things that he's doing or the ways he's doing them and say, well, wait a second, Jesus, is this really the best way to go about doing this? And that's certainly an important and helpful application of the passage. But today I want us to think a little bit more about this passage from the perspective of Jesus. Now we know that at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was tempted It is recorded in the Gospel of Mark. We looked at it briefly a few weeks ago. The Gospel of Mark doesn't give us really many details of what happened and in what ways he was tempted, but this Gospel, as well as others, tells us this story about how before Jesus began in ministry, he was brought out into the wilderness and he was tempted before he began his ministry. But we also recognize and understand that... um, both because it wouldn't make sense logically and because we see evidence of it throughout the New Testament that temptation didn't stop there. That especially when we get to the end, when we look at Jesus praying in Gethsemane, 
He wasn't spending hours and hours in fervent prayer just because. He wasn't doing it just to be a good example. There was temptation. And what I believe about this passage is this gives us a a picture of how Jesus kept himself focused and on the right path in ministry. Because we believe that he was fully man, he was fully human, and he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he was without sin. And we all know that just because we start out in the right direction, that doesn't mean Satan won't try to get us off course along the way. Just because we come and, and pray at the altar for a deliverance from from addiction or abuse or sin or whatever the case may be, just because we start there, we leave healed, we leave free, doesn't mean that Satan won't try to work his way in. We know that from our own lives. You know it from what's happened in your life or people around you that you've seen make changes and then sometimes those changes don't last and satan tempts us in a lot of different ways sometimes it's big temptations right sometimes it's really really big obvious things and in a moment of weakness we make the wrong choice or in a moment of choosing to rely on the strength of the spirit we make the right choice but there are so many other ways where it's small steps right little things Little moments of giving in to anger or lust or the imagination. Little moments of seeking to fill the voids in ourselves with the wrong things, even if they don't seem that bad. Here's what I would propose to you today. Think about this from the perspective of Jesus. Any human being facing the prospect of having to willingly suffer for the benefit of others, would be tempted to find another way. Can we all agree on that? Any human would be tempted. And we know that Jesus bore the weight of that. We know from his prayers in Gethsemane that it... who fights to see eternity through the lens of the temporary physical in which we dwell. One of the great struggles of being a Christian, right, is that we're trying to look into eternity through physical lenses and physical eyes. And that can cloud our judgment. So Jesus begins to teach the disciples, giving them the opportunity to hear from him plainly what he says to the crowd's cryptically, and Peter shows that he is not yet ready. He can't handle it yet. Peter is not ready to handle the plain truth that Jesus will be killed. He takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. 
Jesus turns and he sees all of his disciples and he rebukes Peter right back and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Jesus is full of grace. He's full of kindness. He's full of love. We see Jesus all throughout the Gospels show so much tenderness and compassion to those who are broken or troubled. And then we have this passage where he seems to speak more harshly to Peter than we see Jesus speak anywhere throughout the Gospels. I mean, he really, he's not kind to Peter. He's very, he's so firm. And again, we we start with this passage by thinking about ourselves as Peter and thinking about how harshly we need to be rebuked when we are setting our minds on the things of the flesh. Because ultimately, the truth is, there are two ways to look at things. There is God's spiritual, eternal way, and there is the fleshly, temporary, carnal way. There's God's way out and our way out. There's God's coping mechanisms and our coping mechanisms. There's God's way to handle conflict and there's our way to handle conflict, right? And there are times where we as Peter need to be reminded of that, that there are things that are black and white. We are following God's way of doing it or we are following Satan's way of doing it, period. Even if Satan's way doesn't seem that bad, If it doesn't seem like it's really hurting anyone, it's not a big deal. Even the the, the littlest of things. Even the littlest of things. The things that we turn to when things aren't going well. So there's times we need that reminder, that black and white rebuke of you're starting down a path. And and if this is the path that God has for us, it might just be a step like this, which doesn't seem like it makes any difference whatsoever. But even the small things, if they're on the wrong path, lead to great consequences. But then take the other perspective, take Jesus' perspective, Because what I believe about this passage is that this is another example of a temptation of Jesus. That this passage isn't just about Peter being corrected. This passage is also about Jesus following the path laid for him. And and as much as Peter saw the way forward that road to the cross clearly laid before them, right? Peter is standing here. Jesus is in front of him. Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, look, we're going right here. We are walking down a road that leads to my death and my crucifixion. And Peter says, Jesus, no, no, no. We cannot go there. That cannot happen. And he tries to yank Jesus off the path. And as such, he's rebuked harshly. But also, if you imagine Jesus at the front of that, leading the disciples, walking the path laid before him, because of Peter's rebuke, 
he has to turn to Peter, right? He has to turn and take his eyes off where he's going for just a moment. He is, in a way, distracted by Peter's rebuke and Peter's outcry. And Jesus, in modeling the behavior that we are to follow, when God's will in his life is being threatened, when the path that God has laid before him is in danger of being abandoned, he wastes no time on formalities or pleasantries. He gets right to the point. He says, get back behind me. Peter steps out of line. Peter's following. He steps out of line and says, Jesus, I don't think we can go that way. And Jesus says, get back where you belong. I'm not following you. I'm headed this direction. I believe what Jesus says here was not just as a correction for Peter, but it was ensuring that he himself remained on the right path. Because there will always be things in our lives that try to pull our attention away from what God has called us to. And sometimes... They will come from the people that love us most. Who only are from their side of things looking out for our best interest. Peter didn't say what he said because he hates Jesus. Right? It wasn't Judas who said this who later went on to betray Jesus. This is Peter, one of his inner three, this man who, who loved Jesus. Peter in his mind was doing the right thing. He was acting out of compassion. He would have said he was acting out of love. The temptations that pull our gaze from what God has laid before us can come from all different places. Peter didn't get kicked out of the disciples for this. But we as a church need to recognize that Satan will use our best intentions. He will use our best intentions to attack the weak points in others. And we need to be ready to recognize that, accept that, not be offended if it comes up, if it comes out. And in the shoes of Jesus, we need to be very quick, very firm, and very prepared to get ourselves back on that straight line. Even if it means doing things that perhaps seem abrupt or rude to those around us. And then what does Jesus do? As soon as he rebukes Peter, he just goes straight to the crowd. He doesn't try again with the disciples. You notice that? He just says, you were, he doesn't say this, but it's implied that they weren't ready to hear it, or at least Peter wasn't ready to hear it. He said what he needed to say to them, and then he moved to the crowd. He started walking 
forward. Right? He said to the disciples, we're going this way. He said to them directly. Peter rebukes him. He puts himself back on the right track and then starts walking again by teaching the crowds the same thing just in veiled language. So that's two action steps for us. Now, I don't know what the application of this is for you. I'll be honest, I always struggle with trying to discern how specific I need to be in my messages. Because I don't want to give you something that's just so up in the air and so vague that you don't know what to do with it. But I also want to leave room for God to speak and to direct. And I pray that I'm being faithful to that this morning. So I can't tell you what your application of this is. Maybe it's something in the form of a specific ministry or calling that you're meant to do. Whether it's a formal ministry in the church, whether it's something that God has called you to in your workplace or in your community. Or maybe the path that God is speaking to you about today is more along the lines of just your journey out of sin and into holiness. But there's two things that we need to do, church, as Christians, as ministers, as leaders, as heads of families, as as everything. When something begins to get us off track and to distract us from what God has called us to, we need to be quick in our responses to get back on the path that he has laid before us. And we need to be quick to begin moving forward again. Jesus didn't go back and try to restate it another way. He didn't argue with Peter and tell him why he was wrong. He just moved forward and how many times in our lives do we feel bad about that place where we messed up a little bit and we go back and try to fix it or do it again or i should be able to do that i should be able to handle that i should be able to walk through that instead of just walking forward to the next place god has called us There's so many little things that can get us off track. Repent quickly. Repent often if you need to. Repenting often also means we often repent small. Minimizes the potential for damage to ourselves and others. And isn't it incredible? This happens. Peter is rebuked. Jesus go on, goes on. He preaches to the crowds. And then the next story we have is that six days later, with no indication of what happened in the middle of that, that Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain by themselves with Jesus. They see him transfigured before them. They witness Elijah and Moses there talking to Jesus. And they hear the 
voice of God speaking to and about Jesus. It's the next story we hear. There's nothing about what Jesus did to fix Peter or go back and reteach it or anything like that. He just moves forward. So church, let's repent quickly. Let's seek to walk forward. And last thing, let's not get trapped in the guilt that would hold us in that moment, that would define us by that moment of small or great weakness. following the example of Jesus. We're going to close in prayer. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's going on in your hearts. I know what's going on in mine. And uh, we're a little early today. I'm just going to linger here for a few moments. Um, no pressure or anything, but if there's a correction you need to make in your life, I want to give you space to make that correction before you walk out the doors. Give you time to make that correction before you leave. So we're just going to spend a, a few minutes in prayer. And if you have something that you need to allow God to correct, if you need to get back on track, whatever that looks like for you, I'd invite you to pray and give that to him. As we're doing that, um, I'd invite you to come pray at the altars. There's nothing magic about altars. If you're not from a tradition that has these, they're nothing fancy. It's just a place to... It's a place to pray to surrender, to allow others to pray with you. If that's something that you need, to have someone to come alongside of you and pray for you and pray with you. You can pray there, you can pray in your seats. But I want to give you the opportunity to respond to him in any way that you need to. So let's go to prayer. Father, we... uh, We all have a different calling, but it all looks like pursuit of your kingdom and the building of your kingdom. And all of us are called to walk a number of different paths. We walk the paths of our our own journey in grace, our journeys out of sin and into forgiveness, our journeys of being made holy and being made like you. We all have areas in our lives where sin has tried to hold on to us, area in our lives where sin has in the past had dominion and it wants to get us back there. We have areas where sin tries to pull us into a a pit of addiction where there are chains waiting to hold us down. And maybe that looks like some of the 
typical things, and, and maybe it doesn't. Maybe those chains look less like a substance and more like just doubt and insecurity and not feeling like we're good enough. And as we grow, as we become more like you, you give us responsibilities in our faith, people that we are responsible for. We are responsible for our, our families and our loved ones. We are given responsibility for those who, who live near us in our communities. We are given responsibility of those who we work with or see on a regular basis. And you call us to be your hands and feet in those areas. So, Father, if any of us have strayed, if we have begun to, to miss the mark, to allow that which is of our flesh to impact the decisions we're making or the things we're doing, Father, open our eyes to see those. That in all things we may keep our eyes on you. focused on your love and your grace and where you have called us to go and who you have called us to be. Father, may we be Christians and believers that have so little tolerance from the, for the influence of sin in our lives that we don't let it linger for even a moment. But we are so ready to be corrected to be put back on the right path in all things. Father, grant us the humility to admit when we're wrong, admit when we have added to your will in our lives. We have added to the work you have called us to do out of our own ambition or preference. Let us be people who walk straight and narrow path to your kingdom. Taking every opportunity to bring others along with us. Jesus, thank you for the example that you set as you showed that what you were called to wasn't easy. That not everything went smoothly, there were disagreements, there were difficult points, there was sorrow, there was pain, so that we know that we are not alone in all that we encounter and in all that we experience. May we as a church be so committed to your will and your plan. May we see the goodness in what you call us to Father, may we walk that path that leads to abundance of peace, grace of hope, and love. It's not about us. Father, it's about you. May we be an obedient church, an obedient people. Father, use us to do mighty, mighty things in your world. For the building of your kingdom, 
that we recognize that things that, that are mighty works in the building of your kingdom might go completely unnoticed to the world around us. Enormous victories can be won in the church that don't make headlines, that don't make the papers, that aren't noticed by those around us. Mighty victories in the kingdom are often not that impressive to the world and by the world's standards. But we don't judge ourselves by the world's standards. We measure ourselves by yours. Let's remember that. Father, in all that we do, may we bring you praise. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.